Tonight we're going to revisit an often overlooked and forgotten fundamental of gospel preaching. And we'll be reading in John's Gospel, chapter 6. Verse 44. This is Jesus speaking. This is the Word of God. This communicates an absolute. Jesus said, No man can come to me except the Father which hath sent me draw him. No man can come to me except the Father which has sent me, draw him. I want to pause just for a moment, and I want you to digest that truth. As Jesus said, allow that saying to sink deep down into your ears and get into your heart. I know it is a fundamental. It is a given. We take it for granted. We've heard it hundreds, perhaps thousands of times before. But I want you to understand tonight that absolutely no man can come to the Lord Jesus Christ except the Father draw. In this message tonight, just for a moment, we're going to consider the convicting power of a holy God. And we are going to know and learn tonight that it is an essential component in the experience of conversion. No man can come to the Lord Jesus Christ apart from divine intervention by God himself. Conviction is that divine power, that divine intervention that convinces the sinner his need. Amen. Shows him that he has a great need to be delivered and to be saved. And that is the only legitimate and valid motivation for coming to the Lord Jesus Christ. We need to return to that biblical truth, to that fundamental truth of gospel preaching. I know that we've heard this time and time again. We would acknowledge and we would agree. But we have to understand that conviction is no mundane and casual event. It is monumental. It is supernatural. And it is beyond human fabrication. Amen. It is beyond any invention of human power. Amen. Thus, unless men are convicted and convinced of their awful sinfulness before a holy God, they will never come to the Lord Jesus Christ. This is something that we need to return to in the church. Our thought tonight is the crisis of conviction. May God grant his ears to hear his word here tonight. Father, we come to you in needy people. We're appreciative. We're grateful for your spirit. And Lord, we know that the Holy Ghost is here to apply the word of God. We ask, Lord, for that anointing that destroys the yoke. We pray, Lord God, for your spirit, Lord, power and divine authority to declare the truth, Father. We know that our minds need to be renewed, Lord God, and transformed. And we ask tonight that you would wash us with the water of the word, that we would have right thoughts and right notions about you, that we might rightly and accurately represent you. We ask it in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. 
Jesus here in our text, he presents an absolute. The theological implications thereof are often though overlooked, neglected, and even disregarded in this hour of seeker-sensitive, easy-believism. Sadly, the tendency today is to redefine or to ignore altogether the absolute necessity of conviction in the new birth experience. If we fail to understand the dynamics of the gospel and conviction in particular, then we are ill-prepared to be a witness for the Lord Jesus Christ. And I believe that is the case, amen, in much of the church world. Those who would share the gospel or those who would step out, they have a a lot of unbiblical expectations because they're biblically illiterate. I want you to think about it here tonight. If conviction is absolutely essential in the conversion of souls, and we know that it is because Jesus said that it is, then we must desire to see sinners come under conviction. Amen? We must desire that. We must want that. Amen. This being true, consider tonight what the Bible tells us about a Holy Ghost conviction. Amen. Knowing that this must take place and those that God has called us to minister to and to preach to, then we need to know the attributes, the characteristics, and the marks of biblical conviction. First of all, we ask ourselves this question. How might we define conviction? This drawing of the sinner by God the Father to the Lord Jesus Christ. We've heard the term conviction many, many Many times before. But what does it actually mean? Well, according to Webster's 1828 dictionary, conviction can be described as the act of compelling one to admit the truth of a charge, the act of convincing of sinfulness, the state of being convinced, the state of being sensible or aware of guilt. By conviction, a sinner is brought to repentance. When a criminal has been apprehended, charged and tried and found guilty, it is said that he has been convicted of the crime. Amen. Sinners must come under conviction if they're ever to come to the Lord Jesus Christ. Thus conviction is the experience of the sinner being awakened to his sinfulness. Amen. Awakened to the penalty of his sinfulness and the only remedy for his sin. Now I want you to hear this tonight. Amen. I want you to understand the nature of conviction. It is perhaps nothing or there is perhaps nothing more uh, disturbing and unsettling and gut-riching than Holy Ghost conviction. There is nothing in human experience amen that puts more pressure on the human soul than the conviction of the Holy Ghost. If it were not not for its glorious end, it would be accurate to call conviction awful and terrible torment of the mind and the soul. Make no mistake about it. It requires a divine intervention, a supernatural dealing to break that proud 
proud and obstinate self-will that is typical of fallen nature. Man is a fallen creature. He is morally depraved. He is corrupted and he is estranged from God. He is a criminal and an enemy of the Almighty and he is intrinsically by nature set against and opposed to God. Amen. He must be reconciled unto God by a supernatural act of the Holy Ghost. It is a miracle, the new birth. I said it's a miracle. You just as well go down to the graveyard and raise the dead, amen, in your own strength as see one be, someone be born again just by intellect, amen. It is that much of a supernatural miracle. It cannot happen apart from God Almighty. I remember my experience and you know as I tell people about how I got converted you know you may think that I'm a Calvinist by my experience so profound was that conviction so terrible amen I was a wicked and an evil man I suppose after the service me and brother Sean will have to go here in the lunchroom and arm wrestle over who was the most wicked I believe everyone that truly gets born again they believe they were the chiefest of sinners because that's exactly what the Holy Ghost will show you under the convicting power of the Spirit. Amen. I had no interest in God whatsoever. I utterly loved my sin and I was committed to myself. But when the Spirit of God divinely intervened in my life there was a lot of sleepless nights. Amen. There was an overwhelming guilt. My sin became exceedingly sinful under the light of the law of the Holy Ghost the word of God exposed me I was afraid very much afraid there was the terror of eternal damnation the Bible says the beginning of wisdom and understanding is the fear of the Lord we don't want to make anyone afraid in this hour I can tell you why because we're unbiblical people amen to God that people would be afraid they should be terrified I said they should be terrified if they don't have the Lord Jesus Christ but you know the spirit of God came he dealt with me he dealt with my behavior but he also dealt with the principle amen of sin which was independence from God almighty amen it wasn't just that God wanted me to give up my dope smoking and my drunkenness, though obviously he did. He wanted my life. He wanted everything, and he wanted all. And that was the great crisis of conviction, because I would have been willing to negotiate some things, but he wanted everything. He wanted all and everything, and that produced a crisis. That's what conviction is. Remember, we above all must, though, desire this conviction. We must desire this to happen to those that we hope to win to the Lord Jesus. Jesus Christ. So often we forget this fundamental truth. Amen. We want it to be pain free. We want conversion to be a seamless transformation from life to death. But we forget that there is going to be that crisis. We forget there's going to be a war that rages in the spirit for that soul. Amen. And oftentimes, listen to me, nobody's born into this world and nobody leaves this world without pain there's going to be pain in the spirit for someone to be born again 
Amen. It's not going to be bloodless. Amen. They're going to have to be born of the Spirit. But we learn here conviction is an absolute necessity for conversion. And we don't need to have any false expectations. No man can come to me except the Father which has sent, sent me draw him. Our text irrefutably teaches that absolute that no man will come to Jesus apart from God's convicting power. Now contrary to popular thought, fallen humanity has no innate interest in God, but rather is predisposed to evade and hate him. And thus, there has never been, never ever in the history of humanity, there has never been one single man who sought God of his own accord. Amen. Not one. Amen. Every single man that has sought God, amen, it began with God seeking him. That's what the Bible says herein is love. Not that we love God, amen, but that he loved God and sent his son. Amen. The Bible says Jesus came to seek and to save that which is lost. I know I'm sounding like a Calvinist, but I'm not. Amen. I believe every one of us have a free will, but that free will is not the ability to get with, right with God independent of God. It's not the ability just to choose to serve God. No, no. It's the ability when God comes a calling. It's the ability to say no. That's what free will is. When he comes and draws and deals with you and I. Every man can resist him. Remember what Stephen said to that high council. Ye do always resist the Holy Ghost. They were exercising their free will. I was under terrible, awful Holy Ghost conviction for a year, year and a half, two years. I don't know. I remember exactly how long. But I was exercising my free will because I didn't want to give up my sin. Ultimately, God drew a line in the sin. I was a sinner. And the Holy Ghost spoke to me one night walking across Nicholson Boulevard. I could take you to the very spot in Baton Rouge. And the Holy Ghost told me, you either get right now or you will be damned forever. And it terrified me. I got right, amen, just a few days later. Just a few days later. Amen. I can tell you though, it is absolutely necessary that men go through this experience of conviction to come to Jesus. Amen. There's never been anybody that sought God independent of God. Not because men can't choose, but because they won't. Psalms 10 and 4, it says the wicked through the pride of his countenance will not seek after God. God is not in all his thoughts. Charlie quoted the scripture, I believe this morning there is none that seeketh after God we need to believe that I heard a preacher say the increased popularity of the occult proves men are spiritually hungry they're searching for a God that they do not know how many of you heard people say things like that oh the interest in the new age reveals a misguided hunger for God such statements pre 
presupposes three unscriptural and utterly illogical concepts. Number one, that sinners can seek God apart from God. That is absolutely unscriptural and we've already established that. The second erroneous thought, sinners can sincerely seek God and not find Him. I can tell you if there's any sinners out there seeking God, it's because God is drawing them. And Jesus promised, seek and ye shall find. Knock and the door shall be open unto you. The prophet Jeremiah speaking for God said when you seek me with all of your heart, you shall find me. And the third erroneous thought, sinners are completely oblivious to God, his nature and his law. And we know in Romans 1 and 20, it says for the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made. That's you and I. Even his eternal power and Godhead so that they are without excuse. Do we believe what the Bible says here? I don't care what the pagan may say. I don't care if he says I don't understand. I don't know who God is. I'm not familiar with it. I don't know what the law says. Absolutely not. There is an intrinsic law written on that conscience. Amen. We concede it's limited. Amen. But it's far more than they would let us or go on to believe. Amen. Because it is far reaching. And it makes them culpable and accountable. They are responsible. Which means they can appropriately respond. Amen. They can but they won't. Such unscriptural notions reveal how little though we understand about the gospel and the new birth. No men infatuated with the devil may mean many things but certainly not that people are hungry for God. The Bible teaches that sinners by their sins are utterly alienated from God. Apart from intervention, amen, their damnation is already sealed and it is just it's already just, amen God doesn't have to offer any remedy, amen every one of us deserve hell and we deserve it tonight, amen we deserve it right now, amen and we could live sin-free, amen, the rest of our life. We still deserve hell. This separation is not merely a difference of opinion or a philosophical misunderstanding. No, the sinner has willfully set himself against God, his ultimate enemy. The sinner is a rebel against God, a rebel against his authority, against his law, against his gospel, and against his son. They have no alibi and they have no excuse. If you will believe this, if this spiritual premise is a foundation in your heart then your gospel preaching amen will be biblical or it will be at least more biblical than not amen we must believe what the bible says sinners are willfully separated from god and have chosen to remain in a hostile position of opposition toward him romans 8 and 7 because the carnal mind 
is enmity against God. For it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. Amen. We no longer believe this in the church. Somehow, unconsciously, we have made the sinner the victim. And I can tell you one of the problems. One of the problems is the church no longer practices biblical evangelism and they've forgotten. They're dealing with people in the church. It's been 10, 20 years before they've gone out on the devil's ground and confronted sinners in their sin to see what they really are. See, you forget, you forget that hostility. And when you're out there, then it, it, it helps you keep your thumb on the pulse of the world, so to speak. It helps you to remember where you came from. But see, we no longer practice biblical evangelism. And the repercussions are greater just than souls perishing. Because discipleship, what did Jesus do with the twelve? He brought them to practically walk out, amen, working in the ministry and preaching the gospel. He commissioned them to go. And it's every man's responsibility to go. Amen. It's every man's responsibility to practice biblical evangelism. Amen. And this one truth alone necessitates the utter need for the prevenient grace of conviction. They will never come. They will never come except the Father draw them. And it's not always. In fact, most of the time, it's going to be a very ugly scene. It's going to be terrible. It's going to be awful. And the things that we need to do is to cooperate with God and not interfere. Amen. With the dealings of a holy God and his law upon that conscience oh but so often we want to shield folks from this awful experience of conviction and I can tell you all that is is unbelief all that is is we quote this scripture but we don't really believe it thus as our text teaches without conviction no sinner will seek God now there are three essentials in Holy Ghost conviction and they're communicated in John 16 and 8 Jesus speaking of the Holy Ghost said when he the Holy Ghost has come he will reprove he will convict the world of sin righteousness and judgment what does God want to talk to sinners about he wants to talk to them about their sin he wants to talk to them about what they should be uh, the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ and he wants to talk to them about their impending doom and damnation because they refuse to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ the Holy Ghost comes to talk to that sinner about sin righteousness and judgment there can be no Holy Ghost conviction apart from reproof regarding sin righteousness and judgment I want you to listen to me here perhaps there's no three topics that are more rejected in the professing church and more hated than the topics of sin righteousness and judgment you don't want to offend the poor little sinner. You might scare him with all that talk of hellfire and brimstone. Yes, he needs to be scared. <laughs> Thank God I got scared. Amen. Thank God I got scared. Should we wonder 
why there is so little Holy Ghost conviction. Yes, the gospel's preacher's message, if it is anointed by the Holy Ghost, if he is led by the Spirit of God, he will emphasize reproof. And reproof is hated in this culture. Reproof is hated in this culture. Judge not. Judge not. That's why they say that. As soon as you begin to apply moral obligation, amen, they begin to, to offer up deflections and excuses to evade the light. Brother Charlie quoted the scripture. This is the condemnation that light has come into the world. But men prefer darkness. Why do they prefer darkness? Why do they prefer an excuse? Why do they want to hide? Because their deeds are evil. That's why. Amen. But we must bring the light to expose, to awaken the conscience. Amen. To be a platform where the Holy Ghost can operate and influence that unregenerate heart to awaken them to the conviction of the Holy God. We are messengers of the Most High. Ambassadors for the Lord Jesus Christ. And this rebuke of the holy preacher, filled with the Holy Ghost and led of the Spirit, it will concentrate on the sinner's sin, his lack of righteousness, and the judgment he will soon face. The willingness to declare the law. There is such a misunderstanding in the church today in regards to law and grace. What, 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 even, uh, what are the definitions of law and grace? Where do the two covenants end and begin amen people hate the law they hate the law they despise they're more afraid of the law than they are of sin the law cannot save the law cannot justify but the law is given for the knowledge of sin and it is a schoolmaster to bring men to christ amen it's good the bible says in 1 Timothy 1 and 9, if a man use it lawfully, it's not for the righteous, it's for the sinner. And we ought to use, it has its place in the gospel declaration. We must preach the law of God so as to expose sin. Many times, you know, well-meaning, sincere, professing Christians will oppose you on the street and they'll say, you're preaching the law. I just say, yes, that's exactly what I'm doing. I'm preaching the law and I need to preach the law so that, that these are fornicators these are drunkards these are whoremongers these are liars and these are thieves and first of all if they don't tremble before the holy law they will not bow the knee amen to a loving savior they must be first awakened you take a man out here to the Mississippi River, you knock him unconscious and throw him out of that river. As he's drowning, he won't even know his state. He first has to be awakened. He first has to be awakened. And the law awakens that careless sinner, as Mr. Finney used to refer to him as, awakens that careless sinner so that suddenly he becomes aware. Amen. You think back to your experience. There came a time before you were born again that you became aware that you were transgressing the law of God before fornication, adultery, whatever it may have been. There may have been some, you know, tinge of the conscience, but suddenly it became awful, terrible, criminal against the holy God. What happened? The law of God made sin exceeding full sin.
exceeding sinful in your eyes. And now it began to take you over. It began to consume your thoughts. And you were drawn. You began to look for the rope that someone was going to throw you as you drowned in the sea, in the waves of sin. Where's the life preserver? Amen. Listen to me. When a man is wakened to his danger, to his impending doom, he will begin to cry out for a Savior. He must be first awakened. He must be convicted. And you know, listen to me. Of the judgment to come, I not only knew I was going to hell, I came to the place where I believed I deserved it. Amen. Just like Brother Sean said. It's hard to get people even to believe in hell in this hour. To admit there is such a place. God would be far too good to even make such a place. You see, you're talking about a culture that is not conscious of sin. A reprobated culture that doesn't understand the utter guilt of sin. But then you may find some who would admit they're going to hell. But fewer still to say they deserve hell. You see, the conviction of the Holy Ghost brings a man to that place. We have a banner. I had a banner made. You deserve hellfire. The reason I had that banner made is because I knew it would strike at the heart of this truth. You would be amazed. You carry that banner. You won't have to say anything. Just go stand out on the street corner with that banner. And one after another, they will come up and say, I don't deserve hell. I don't deserve hell. What kind of thing is that? You can, you can be guaranteed someone has not had the experience of Holy Ghost conviction that does not believe that they deserve hellfire. But we want to shield people from this when in fact, listen to me, they must experience this before they can ever be born again. They must digest the truth. If we're unbelieving, foolish, Carnally minded. We want to shield the sinner from such a fate. But if we do so, we do an eternal injustice to him. Amen. The world and religious hypocrites, they hate such preaching. They accuse it to be judgmental, offensive, and counterproductive. You know, over the years, the professing church, the carnal, the backslid, amen, they have sought the approval of man, and they have been seduced in such reasoning as this. Above all, they seek to avoid the preachy image, bending over backwards to be non-offensive and make the sinner feel comfortable. I can tell you this. I pastor a little bitty church church in Woodville, Mississippi. I want sinners to come. Amen. But when they come, I want the power of the Holy Ghost. I want the atmosphere to be such that the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ, amen, communicate a divine ultimatum to that sinner. Let that sinner be driven to the altar or let that sinner be driven out. But let there be no gray area. God forbid that sinners could come into the house of God and feel comfortable. They should never feel comfortable in the presence of the one they crucified. Never. Never. Amen. I do know that if they're being drawn, amen, if they're being convicted, then they can come. But you know, God never called me to convince that sinful world that I love them.
He never called me to do that. He only called me to love them. He never called me to convince them. He only called me to love them. Remember, Jesus was love. There was never anything he said, never anything he did that wasn't love. And they nailed love to a tree. That's what the world thought about love. Amen. And we should not think that we're going to be above the Lord Jesus Christ. Above all, they they seek to avoid to offend. They're men pleasers. And ultimately... As Brother Charlie so eloquently pointed out, the primary interest in our audience is God. We preach the gospel for Him. We preach the gospel for Him. Just remember, Jesus died for everybody, but very few people, amen, will ever come to repentance. The Bible says straight is the gate, narrows the way, few be that find it. But Jesus didn't, He didn't ultimately die, amen, for the salvation of man. That was included. He died. He laid down his life to the glory of the Father. It doesn't matter if anyone believes or not. Amen. That was a sweet-smelling sacrifice unto the Father. And whatever we do in Christianity, whatever you do, you do it to the glory of God. It doesn't matter whether you're evangelist. It doesn't matter whether you pastor a church. It doesn't matter whether you're homeschooling, parent, whatever it is, to the glory of God. If I do the will of God whether anybody believes me or not whether I labor in obscurity or not if I do the will of God I have been successful in the eyes of God and that is the only praise that we need to seek the praise that comes from God alone a denial though of biblical conviction in this hour an active effort even to evade and quench such an atmosphere amen no one can ever comfortably come to the Lord Jesus Christ apart from the crisis of conviction or pardon me it will never just be comfortable people are not just gonna you know sit down one day and make some kind of shallow decision remember the parable of this or if they do it won't be legitimate or if they do they're going to have to make a deeper commitment down the road it says in the parable of the sower there were four classes of people amen two classes received one class the bible says they received the word anon with joy it said but when tribulation and persecution when trouble arrives for the word's sake they're offended Amen. No root within them. No counting the cost. No deep work of the Holy Ghost. Amen. That leads me to my next point here. Amen. There are three essentials to Holy Ghost conviction. But the catalyst for conviction is the God-called preacher. The church of the Lord Jesus Christ. God is a limitless God that's chosen to limit himself and that he will communicate his son through the body of the Lord Jesus Christ, through sanctified vessels filled with the Spirit, declaring the word of God. The catalyst for conviction is the preacher. How shall they hear without a preacher? The implications of such a statement, amen, we cannot escape. If there is no preacher, 
they will not hear. Now, you've heard people say, we just talked about the ministry of the Holy Ghost. And people misinterpret the ministry of the Spirit. They say, why don't you just let the Holy Ghost deal with the sinner? Amen. How many of you heard that before? Well, you remember the day of Pentecost. The Holy Ghost fell initially on that church. Amen. And I can tell you, was there any doubt that the Spirit of God was there? He was there in power and divine authority. And all in Jerusalem began to wonder at these things. There were signs. There was wonders. But nobody was pricked in their conscience until Peter stood up full of the Holy Ghost and said, Ye wicked men, amen, with wicked hands, you crucified the Prince of Life. Until he put his finger on the spot and preached the gospel. No one cried out, how? What must we do to be saved? And God did use the Holy Ghost to reprove the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment on that day. He did it through his sanctified vessel, the church, and he's still doing that. Now, I recognize and understand the Holy Ghost can deal with men. I understand the Holy Ghost obviously can deal with people that are born again because they have a relationship with him. But when you're dealing with that sinner, there must be a preacher. And the Holy Ghost wants to convict. And he wants to reprove. But he wants to use you to do it. He wants to use you to do it. This is just a cop-out. When they say, we don't want to tell uh, the man he's shacked up with someone. We're not going to tell him that adultery is going to send him to hell. We're just going to pray for him. You pray hard enough. The Holy Ghost is going to tell you, you love that man. Amen. When Jesus said, love your neighbors yourself, you turn back in the law and read it. Amen. Leviticus 18, I believe. In context, it says, ye shall not suffer sin upon your neighbor, but you shall rebuke him. Love thy neighbor as thyself. The Holy Ghost will tell you, you go knock on that man's door and you tell him, I love you, sir. I must warn you, destruction is coming. No adulterer shall enter the kingdom of God. But without a true gospel preacher, there can be no Holy Ghost conviction to draw the sinner. Gospel preaching is God's ordained means to communicate the gospel. And as we pointed out, his message, the gospel preacher's message, for the most part, will be a message of reproof. He will declare the law to expose sin. He will lift up the Lord Jesus Christ to define righteousness and he will boldly warn of the great and the terrible day of the Lord. If we don't get back to preaching the fundamental gospel message then men will never truly be drawn to the Lord Jesus Christ and this is exactly what you're seeing in this culture. 34, 40 years ago there was more of a voice in America. Someone could, perhaps, it was still bad then, but someone could turn on a television set. They could turn on a radio, and they could hear real gospel preaching. I know they're still out there. I'm not saying there's not a remnant. There is a remnant. But the, for the most part, that which is called Christianity is utterly apostate. And we're seeing the ramifications of that in our culture where young children have absolutely no fear of God, no honor for authority. And we are being turned over to an antichrist culture. And for the most part, it's because the pulpit and America America is too timid to preach Jesus Christ and him crucified. Amen. We're too concerned about what the world thinks about us. 
instead about what God thinks about us. There can be no Holy Ghost conviction without Holy Ghost preaching. What about Holy Ghost singing, Brother Brett? I love Holy Ghost singing. Amen. Jesus never sang to sinners. Well, couldn't God use a puppet show? How about some mimes? Jesus never did a mime. Never had a play. I had a man write me not long ago. What'd you think about this new movie coming out? I'd never seen it before. Amen. I don't know anything about it. I know where they, they talk to about, about the passion. That's a Catholic movie. Made by a lot of whoremongers and devils. That's the truth. Stripping in one movie. Amen. Putting on, you know, a little outfit acting like Jesus the next. I heard they were, uh, you know, uh, whoever played Jesus, I, I don't even know his name, but they were, you know, going through the, the uh, motions of uh, uh, the whipping, the scourging that he received, and they, uh, the guy that was doing it slipped up and actually hit him with the whip, and he blasphemed God. Terrible. Awful. And the blind professing church said, this is revival. A few years later, we can't even discern between our left hand and our right hand. But a man wrote me, what do you think about this movie? I said, I don't know anything about the movie. I know Jesus didn't do any movies. You know what he wrote me about? Well, that, that was before technology. He can walk on water, but he can't make a movie. You talk about blind. You think God is waiting for... God's got to wait for man to invent technology before we could have the ultimate, you know, vehicle of expression. The reason that Jesus wasn't in a movie is because God didn't want him in a movie. The reason Jesus didn't sing rock and roll to sinners is because God didn't want him to. Because if he would have wanted him to, he would have. Jesus, are we going to improve on his method? This is how arrogant and how proud the modern church has become. We can do it better than Jesus did it. No, we can't. We had better humble ourselves and look to that model right there. What Jesus did is what we ought to do as the body of Christ. Amen. And that is the only thing that God is going to bless. Holy Ghost conviction is not going to come unless there's Holy Ghost preaching. Amen. Know the human vessel consecrated wholly to God, filled with God's Spirit, declaring God's Word. It is essential to God's method of drawing. Jesus said, And if I be lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men unto me. When Jesus is exalted, amen, according to the Bible, then men are drawn. Yet the modern church, biblically ill literate and carnally motivated has thought to promote the gospel like a bargain rummage sale. They say, you know, if we're prosperous, amen, if we're blessed, then folks are going to come to get what we have. Indeed, people may come and we see them thronging to the word of faith movement because of the promise of material wealth. But that's not the right motivation. I suppose they haven't been reading their Bible 
because all you have to do is turn over to John chapter 6 and see that Jesus called through that massive altar call simply saying you're going to have to eat my flesh and drink my blood or you have no part in me and they said this is a hard saying who can receive it and Jesus didn't run after them, pumping up their bicycle tires as they rode away and passing out candy canes and, old, and a bucket of water for them. Come back, I'm going to make you rich. He just turned around to his disciples and said, are you going to walk away too? He wasn't playing any games with people. He's not necessarily trying to draw a crowd. He wants people to be born again, and we need to want people to be born again, but not at the expense of the integrity of Almighty God. We will change nothing. We will not mar His image. We will speak plainly. We will unveil all of Jesus. We will not hide the horror of the cross. No, no, preach Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Amen. They reason if they would see miracles, then they would believe the gospel. But apparently they forget that Jesus in the parable of the rich man and Lazarus renounced such thinking. Amen. When he said, when Abraham told him, if they won't believe Moses and the prophets, they'll not believe somebody, even if they've come back from the dead. You know, Charlie uh, exposed that principle right there. If my intellect, if I have to examine the Word of God in such a way to pronounce it authoritative, then my reason has trumped God's authority. And likewise, if miracles is the only re I recognize that people may see a miracle or experience a miracle, and they may turn, they may be awakened, but nevertheless, listen to me, miracles cannot be the sole foundation for trust in God, because the object of biblical faith is the Word of God and the Word of God alone. You must believe His Word. But this is the thinking in the shallow spirituality of today's church. Others say if they just could see Jesus, then, then they'd come knocking on our door. They'd beat down the door. But the Bible says He's despised, rejected of man, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from Him. He was despised and we esteemed Him not. In light of this absolute stated here by the prophet Isaiah, how can that be? If they really see Jesus and us in this hour, I do believe a manifestation of Christ will provide people with the opportunity to repent. But more than likely, we will be hanging from the light poles. More than likely, because that intrinsic hatred is going to rise. If the only reason the church in America is not persecuted like that first century church is because we're not enough like Jesus. Amen. But if we really become like Jesus, they are going to rise up. Amen. This generation is more wicked than that generation. Amen. The Bible says deceivers, amen, wicked men. They'll be subdued. They'll be more wicked, amen, in this year. Getting more wicked day 
by day. No, as the Bible teaches, we must first go. We must preach. Amen. We must give the Holy Ghost grounds. Amen. To operate so that men can come under conviction. Well, what happens when they do come under conviction? What's the nature of the conviction experience? As we've mentioned, conviction is synonymous with reproof for sin. And whenever there's confrontation with sin, it produces a crisis. A holy confrontation always draws a line, gives an ultimatum, and forces a moral choice. Remember, they quoted it, I believe, tonight, Hebrews 12 and 11. Now no chastening for the present seemeth to be joyous. Oh, no. No chastisement and joyous, but grievous. Amen. That's the experience. It's great. Of course, it's merciful. Of course, in retrospect, it's wonderful. Thank God we were convicted. But when you're in the experience, from the outside looking in, it is terrible and grievous. Amen. Conviction literally compels lost sinners to do what they would never do themselves. To consider what they would never consider otherwise. Amen. When you look at the Greek word, the original language, the Greek word that's translated draw in the King James Bible, it literally means to drag God dragging intervening amen it is a crisis not a circus it's serious it's grave and it's sober and if we try to spare the sinner the humiliation of conviction we do them an internal injustice so often you see this you're out on the campus or the street you're preaching and the heathen are raging and some well-meaning soul comes by he observes he judges by sight he looks at the reaction of the heathen and he tells you this is not the way Jesus would do it. He's got more sympathy for the sinner than he does for God. See, those two great commands said one is above the other. The greatest love God supremely. And I'm paraphrasing. The other is likened unto it. Jesus said, Love thy neighbor as thyself. You get those two inverted. You get men serving men in the name of God instead of serving God and ministering unto men. And you're going to have perverse evangelism. That's exactly what you have. People are more concerned about sinners than they are about God. Amen. The Bible says of David, he served his generation because he did the will of God. Amen. When we love God supremely, when we love God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength, that's the only way we can really love sinners. Amen. Think of the man who's diagnosed with cancer. Think of the doctor and his obligation to love his patient. When the man has been diagnosed, the doctor comes in and he communicates the grave news to the individual that's inflicted. He tells him, amen, what he doesn't want him to hear, amen. He tells him what he never wants to hear. It's difficult and it's hard. You know what happens? The first emotion, I would dare say, would be utter and complete fear. Sir, you have cancer. You have terminal cancer. 
You have an affliction. You have an, a, a disease that can potentially kill you. The first emotion that will rise will be fear. It's going to be difficult for that doctor to face that man. There's going to be total upheaval in that man's life. There's going to be, have to be radical changes. Amen. A lot of things are going to be demanded in that man's life. There's going to have to be talk of death. It's going to be bloody and it's going to be brutal. He takes out the x-rays. Amen. He takes out the EEGs and the EKGs. Whatever is necessary to convince and to persuade the man to subject himself to the remedy and the remedy listen to me when you pull back all the veneer of modern medicine and if you had to tell a man you've got a brain tumor and we're going to have to cut your skull open and we're going to have to take remove that brain tumor but there'll be no anesthesia you think about how awful you think about how terrible that would be you think of the reality that's what, what's really happening. But if that doctor just called that cancer patient in, you know, I really love you. One of my best patients. Praise the Lord. You're not in perfect health, but I'm going to pray for you. That would not be love. It'd be a lot more comfortable. It'd be a lot easier for that doctor to do that. But nobody in their right mind would call that love. We know the diagnosis. We have the covenant laid before us. And we have an obligation to warn men that the wicked must turn from his wickedness or perish. And finally here tonight, the different responses of conviction. John 7, verse 12, verse 41, and verse 43. I just kind of picked out of this section here, but you'll understand. It says that there was much murmuring among the people concerning him, Jesus. For some said, he is a good man. Others said, nay, but he deceiveth the people. Then in verse 41, others said, this is the Christ. But some said, shall Christ come out of Galilee? So there was a division among the people because of him. See, when Holy Ghost preaching under Holy Ghost power is presented to sinners, there is going to be ultimatums. People are going to have to choose sides. Someone's going to be for him and some are going to be against him. There will always be a division. But the church in this hour, when they go to breathe, that's the last thing they want. They want everyone to applaud and say, how wonderful. And isn't that, you know, marvelous? And isn't that the Lamb of God? And isn't that the Jesus that we all know? But there are different responses. Conviction brings men face to face with the biblical Jesus. And then they must make a gut Wrenching choice. They must either believe the gospel and therefore forfeit their own life to gain Christ or reject Christ so as to justify their sin. I say it all the time. You're a free moral agent. 
you have the ability to resist God. You have been granted the privilege, the moral capability to live independently from God. And you were exercising that by not subjecting yourself to God's Son. And you can sin. God has allowed you the ability to reject Him. Or you can choose Christ. But you cannot simultaneously choose both. It's either your sin or it's Jesus. Choose this day whom you shall serve. That is the call to repentance. Repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Stop sinning. And I can tell you that's another very basic principle that people no longer believe. Go in your average uh, 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 orthodox uh, conservative Pentecostal church. Stand in the pulpit and say God expects you to stop sinning now. You can sense the unbelief. Who here has got enough boldness to stand up and say, God doesn't expect me to stop sinning? No one. Everyone knows. That's exactly what God expects. And He's given provision to do so. Jesus, He shall come. He shall be born of a virgin. And He shall save His people from their sin. Whosoever abideth in Christ sinneth not. I'm not teaching that Christians cannot sin. I'm teaching, amen, that you can't live free from sin through grace. Amen. I'm not teaching that it's impossible for a Christian to sin. I'm preaching or teaching it's possible that they don't through grace. There's no middle ground. Conviction either breaks a man or hardens him. For those who resist conviction, amen, reactions can run from insanity to violent persecution. But react, all men do. See, many times, violence and anger is, is, a, is, a, is a primary indication that men are being agitated in their conscience. But the modern church has misinterpreted that to mean that we're doing something wrong. Now, just because people hate us doesn't necessarily make us right. Amen? But Jesus did say, woe unto you when all men speak well of you. And the church in this hour, they don't even ruffle the world's feathers. Amen. They don't even disturb anyone. We need to go forth in the power of the Holy Ghost. And we don't need to have any unbiblical expectations. If we deal with sinners the way that God would have us to deal with them, if we deal with sinners faithfully according to the Word of God, then they will face the crisis of conviction. And not only should we desire this, amen, or not only should we not be a hindrance to that or not shield, try to seek to shield them from that, we should pray to that end that they would be utterly tormented in their sin that they would be robbed of all peace that there would be no peace for the wicked that there would be no false security that men would be brought to the crisis of conviction so that out of that incredible need out of that incredible understanding the illumination that I am utterly damned without Christ men will with sincerity Call out to Jesus. Jesus said, no man comes to me except the Father who sent draws him. Let's believe that here tonight. Stand with me. Hallelujah, hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Thank you, Lord Jesus. We ought to just thank him tonight that you were convicted. Amen.
Hallelujah. We ought to just thank Him tonight for the experience of conviction. Hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. Oh, we love you, Jesus. We know that you are merciful. We know that you are loving. And we know, Lord, in your love you drew us to Jesus. It was an awful experience. But, Lord God, we know it was needful. And we know that it was loving. And we honor you for that, Lord God. We revisit this fundamental truth. Help us to see it clearly. Help us to remember, Lord God. And Father, I pray that you would give us wisdom. He that winneth souls is wise. And Father, I ask you in Jesus' name that we would be settled and established in this truth, Lord God. That we would think right thoughts about your word and your gospel. Why don't you find a place here tonight. Pray over what's been spoken to you here. Ask God to help you to see it accordingly. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Hallelujah.
Take 
section of town called Chime Street Mount LSU you can be seated the Holy Ghost told me go to that street preach the gospel I didn't know what to do I was a terrible stutterer in the world not just in conversation but if I got out in front of people couldn't talk in front of people. Just be terrible. It'd be so bad that people would be embarrassed for me. I had a speech class at LSU. I'm awful. I don't know how it passed. This riveting, gut-wrenching fear. I got born again. I knew God called me to preach. I thought, how? do that how will I ever talk God how will I ever get in front of you just knew I had to go I was terrified you've heard me tell the story before I brought my big golden retriever with me I knew I couldn't hit nobody he wasn't saved, so. I was young in Jesus, amen. Went out there one night and sat with my Bible. say anything. Just read my Bible. I was so discouraged. Walked home that night and the Holy Ghost spoke to me. My brother Clendenin always said I thought it was the Holy Ghost then. I know it was the Holy Ghost now. 
said, keep going. One day, you'll stand on this street corner and your voice will echo up and down. I didn't know how that would happen. But I kept going. I met some men that went, had been going for many years. Went with them on the street. And I remember, I, I was very radically born again. These men had been going for many years. They were very direct. They were godly folks. I was very impressed with their boldness. But you know, there was a thought in my mind. I respected them too much to say anything to them. But the thought was, these men are too brash, too direct. I came off this street, and I'm really more suited to win these people to Jesus. I never said that to them, but I thought it. And I started going by myself. It didn't take very long me to realize that I was an arrogant, stupid fool, that I didn't know anything about evangelism, and I didn't know very little about love. God will never put a sword in a man's hand until he goes out to battle. What kind of fool stands at the bottom of a mountain and tells other people how to climb? The reason the church doesn't know what evangelism is is because they don't practice it. The reason they condemn it, they misunderstand it. Jesus said, you do my will. You'll know the doctrine. You can never know what the Great Commission is and what's required to do it until you go. But if you go, and if you're open to be taught by the Spirit, and be corrected by the word. If your desire is to be God-centered in your evangelism, that there's a burning passion to represent Him. To represent Him. To speak for Him. Then, and only then, can you really be the evangelist that God has called you to be. May God help us. Stand tonight. Hallelujah. Isn't Jesus good? Amen. Well, I'm looking forward to tomorrow. Amen. Praise the Lord. Brother Kevin, could you dismiss us with prayer? Amen. God bless you. Hug someone you go. We'll see you in the morning, Lord willing.